Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. This is a little bit of a longer one than usual as it spans the presidencies of Grover Cleveland, who is the only president to have two non-consecutive terms, and Benjamin Harrison, the grandson of former President William H. Harrison. We had to do them all together because of Grover Cleveland's two non-consecutive terms, hence a little bit longer. I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, EliteBookEdits.com. Writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. Please visit EliteBookEdits.com for all of your book editing needs. Also, Keen Insights Internet Services for all of your website and digital marketing needs. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. And lastly, I want to remind you of two things. One, we want you to sign on to our email list. We always send out little tidbits of information on all things Jimmy and Gene, and you can do so at our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, or feel free to drop us a direct message on any of our social channels. Second, I want to give a little plug for my books, Immortals Revelations. It's a story about two immortals, vampires, but they don't like that term, who want to reveal themselves to the world. They start filming a documentary to show the world who they are, and then things start going bad. And The Naughty List, which is a nice Christmas-themed romantic comedy about two people who have been independently working with Santa Claus to get people off of Santa's naughty list, and then Santa sets them on a path to meet each other. It's a lot of fun, Christmas fun, and I hope you check them out. Now, without further ado... And the housekeeping is done. As always, here's our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So in this podcast, we're going to discuss two more presidents who are a little lesser known. One, a little bit more known recently. So Grover Cleveland is the only president to date to serve two non-consecutive terms, and Benjamin Harrison was the grandson of former President William Henry Harrison. Stephen Grover Cleveland was born in 1837 into a large family in Caldwell, New Jersey, and he moved the family to upstate New York when he was young. After the death of his father, Grover Cleveland had to leave school as a young teenager, and he began working to help support his family. There were nine children to feed and very few opportunities for women at the time. He worked as a teacher for the blind and then as a law clerk. That job helped him to acquire the knowledge and skills he needed to pass the bar exam and to become a lawyer. It was a profession that he loved and he was highly respected by his fellow lawyers as well as many judges. Like some of the previous presidents we talked about, Cleveland paid a Polish immigrant to fight in his place in the Civil War. Again, I've said this quote many times, a rich man's war, a poor man's fight. A member of the Democratic Party, he was involved in local upstate New York politics. He was a sheriff and he was elected mayor of Buffalo. He did not seek the office of mayor. He was asked to run because of his reputation for being honest and trustworthy. Imagine that, a politician who is honest and trustworthy. As mayor of Buffalo, he helped to root out corruption. This got him the notoriety from downstate, which is we're talking about the five boroughs of New York, as they are often referred to. In 1883, he was sworn in as governor of New York, and he served until he was elected president in 1884. 
You have to understand his political experience is minimal. In a span of four to five years, he goes from lawyer, mayor of Buffalo, governor of New York, and then bam, president of the United States. As governor of New York, he was known as a reformer who targeted members of his own party within Tammany Hall, which was the Democratic political machine of New York. As governor, he worked with future Republican President Theodore Roosevelt to get a number of laws passed. As a Democratic reformer who even went after Tammany Hall, voters supported Grover Cleveland in the election of 1884. His opponent was former Senator and Secretary of State James Blaine of Maine. It was a close election in regards to the popular vote, but Cleveland won. We talked about this before in an earlier podcast, but New York was considered a swing state. Tammany Hall tried to work against him, but he narrowly won New York and won the presidential election. It was an ugly campaign. He was a bachelor president who was rumored to have fathered a child out of wedlock, Paternity of the child was questioned. It was also thought that his law partner could be the father. Talk about a spider web of a scandal, right? It was certainly used by his opponents, but it did not cost him the election. He dealt with the issue head on, acknowledging that he may have been the father of the child. The child had been adopted by a number by another family, and that was that. The Library of Congress has a wonderful newspaper clipping of an article describing his inauguration. So many people came to Washington, D.C. that some people had to sleep in hallways of buildings and in local parks. Inaugurations were still being held in March at this time. The article goes on to say how he gave his address mostly from memory, only slightly glancing down at his notes a few times. And in his inaugural address, he stated, and this is a direct quote, this impressive ceremony adds little to the solemn sense of responsibility with which I contemplate the duty I owe to all the people of the land. And he goes on to say within the speech that the only way the government can promote the general general welfare is for members of the legislative branch to stop acting on local interests and work for the country as a whole. If you follow the happenings of Congress, this is still an issue. He wanted to limit government spending. He wanted to avoid getting involved in foreign conflicts, relations with Native American tribes he wanted to focus on. He wanted to stop the practice of polygamy. We discussed the issue of statehood for Utah and the practice of polygamy within the Mormon communities in our last podcast. He wanted to continue on with civil service reform, and he discussed the importance of protecting civil rights of black Americans. In his speech, he used the term freedmen. The first two years of his presidency, Grover Cleveland was a bachelor, and that changed when he married Frances Folsom, a woman who was nearly three decades younger than him. The age difference is not what should surprise you the most. Frances was the daughter of his law firm partner that was in charge of the family's estate after her father's death. They kept in touch throughout her college career, and they were married when Francis turned 21. It was a love match. 
Uh, theirs was a very happy marriage. Their marriage created a number of firsts. Frances was the first first lady to have a college degree, and she was the youngest first lady. Grover Cleveland became the first and only president to get married in the White House. The first president to get married uh, while being president was John Tyler, but he did not get married in the White House. They were married in June of 1886, and they would go on to have five children, three of which were born in the White House. The Clevelands didn't make many changes to the White House, as was the custom for each new first family. While today the first family is given a budget of around $100,000, at that time it was around $30,000. The Clevelands bought a large farmhouse in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. called Oakview, where they spent the bulk of their time. They would live in a different private home during his second term in office. Cleveland would also become known for using his power of veto more than any other president before him. He was very hands-on and he often looked into things personally before supporting bills or vetoing them. Early on in his presidency, his vice president, a man by the name of Thomas Hendricks, died. The recent death of President Garfield and the need of a longer list of presidential succession led to the passage of the Presidential Succession Act of 1886. This law replaced the Act of 1792, and it stipulated that after the vice president, the heads of the cabinet departments in the order in which they were created would become president if the president and vice president could not serve. So Secretary of State, Treasury, War, Attorney General. This would be the case until 1947 when it was changed to ensure that elected positions such as Speaker of the House and President Pro Tempore of the Senate would be given priority over appointed ones such as cabinet positions. On October 28, 1886, Grover Cleveland attended the dedication of the Statue of Liberty, which the real name is Liberty Enlightening the World. I discussed the statue and its meaning in our podcast on immigration. He gave a really beautiful speech, and this is a direct quote. Cleveland said, We are not here today to bow before the representation of a fierce warlike God filled with wrath and vengeance, but we joyously contemplate instead our own deity keeping watch and ward before the open gates of America and greater than all that have been celebrated in ancient song. Instead of grasping in her thunderbolts of terror and death, she holds aloft a light which illuminates the way to man's enfranchisement. We will not forget that liberty has here made her home, nor shall her chosen altar be neglected. Willing votaries will constantly keep alive its fires, and these shall gleam upon the shores of our sister republic thence. And joined with answering rays, a stream of light shall pierce the darkness of ignorance and man's oppression until liberty enlightens the world. Foreign policy-wise, he steered clear of getting involved in foreign conflicts, especially those brewing in Latin America. He did not, however, back down from issues that he felt were of grave importance. Border disputes with Britain, protecting United States interests on the island of Samoa. 
he did take the opportunity to improve some of the forts along the coastlines, and he looked to modernize the Navy, which all became incredibly helpful when war did break out in 1898. During his presidency, the Dawes Act was signed into law, which allowed the federal government to sell individual plots of land that had once belonged to specific Native American tribes. President Cleveland supported this law and he pushed for a policy of assimilation when it came to Native Americans. He felt it would be to their benefit. Speak to just about any member of any Native American tribe and they will tell you how negative of an impact this law had on their way of life. It led to Native lands being lost and sold to non-Natives and a further breakdown of their way of life. The Interstate Commerce Act. This law regulated railroad companies which had created a monopoly that hurt the average customer. This law set guidelines for how railroad companies can function and protected consumers, especially farmers, from things like price gouging. It established the ICC, which operated until the agency was abolished in 1995. By the election of 1888, President Cleveland had become somewhat unpopular with certain groups over his policy over tariffs, veterans, pensions, just to name a few things. The Republicans nominated Benjamin Harrison, a former senator from Indiana and the grandson of a former president, William Henry Harrison. Yes, that William Henry Harrison, who thought it would be a great idea not to wear a coat on his inauguration day when it was a very cold day and give one of the longest speeches in inauguration history, who then got sick and died after only being president for 31 days. This election is important because it is one of only five where the candidate who won the popular vote, which was Cleveland, didn't become the president. This would not happen again until the election of 2000. While Cleveland narrowly won the popular vote, he lost the electoral college. If you go to 270towin.com and analyze the election results, you can see sectionalism is alive and well. Harrison won the majority of northern and western states, where Cleveland, a Democrat, carried the South. If that isn't enough proof of sectionalism for you, consider that one of the hot-button issues of the campaign was Cleveland's promise to return Civil War Confederate battle flags to southern states if he was re-elected. You can imagine this did not go over well with the Civil War veterans whose pensions he had vetoed. Cleveland was the first Democratic president elected since the Civil War, and he didn't win re-election. Well, at least not in 1888. Benjamin Harrison won the Electoral College vote, and he became the next president. The two men would meet again in the ring in 1892. So who is Benjamin Harrison? He was born on August 20th, 1833 in Ohio to a well-known family. As we mentioned, his grandfather was the ninth president of the United States, and his great-grandfather was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He was educated, he studied at university, and he became a lawyer. He fought in the Civil War, and he moved up the ranks in the Union Army first as a colonel, and eventually became 
um, a brevet brigadier general of volunteers. He, um, when the war ended, he went back to Indiana where he had moved with his young wife, a woman by the name of Caroline Harrison, before the outbreak of the war. He returned to his law practice and he got involved in local Republican politics. He made an attempt at a run for the governor of Indiana, but he was defeated. But in 1881, he was elected to the United States Senate where he served until 1887. Harrison was sworn in as president on March 4, 1889, while Grover Cleveland held an umbrella over him to keep him dry from the rain. Imagine that happening today. His vice president was a man by the name of Levi P. Morton from New York. And after his term as vice president, he went on to become the governor of New York. In his inaugural address, and he wore a coat for that, he talked about the symbolism of the country taking its steps into the second century. We have completed the centennial anniversary of our existence. Now we start the next 100 years. And he encouraged all states and territories to diversify their economies and encouraged growth of business and industrialization. Keep in mind, we are still in the age of big business. He also called for the regulation of trusts or monopolies. Benjamin Harrison moved into the White House with a rather large entourage. Considering his children were grown, married, had children of their own, you would think that just he and his wife would have moved into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But nope, his children, his grandchildren, his father-in-law, and a number of pets moved into the White House. There is a wonderful story of President Harrison going down Pennsylvania Avenue with his grandchildren and their pet goat named Old Whiskers. Caroline Harrison looked to have the White House enlarged, probably to make room for their extended family. Congress did not approve of that. As First Lady, she did redecorate. She added additional bathrooms and the Harrisons installed electricity into the White House. But as the story goes, they were afraid to touch the switches themselves. She also saw to it that the attics and basements of the White House be cleaned out. There was mold and a significant pest problem. Some historians say that her exposure to those things may have led to her illness and untimely death before her husband's term in office finished. She was the first person to start taking an interest in old China patterns of former presidents and designed the pattern herself for the Harrison China. She was also the first first lady to have a Christmas tree in the White House. She agreed to help raise money for a new medical school, Johns Hopkins University, but on the one condition that if they would permit women to study at the school as well. Keep in mind, this is the 1890s. Women don't have those types of opportunities. So she was very forward thinking as well. She loved to entertain. She loved to decorate. She was a really nice compliment to her husband's somewhat dry personality. He was nicknamed the human iceberg, actually. There were a number of key events during his presidency. Six territories become states. You have Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington, just to name a few of them in no particular order. 
While president, he supported a number of bills that would have allowed for better funding for schools, for children of all races, and protections of voting rights for black Americans. However, those bills did not survive debate in the legislative branch. He also challenged the constitutionality of the Tenure of Office Act. So if you listen to our podcast on President Andrew Johnson and Reconstruction, you know that that law severely weakened the office of the president. This law didn't allow the president to fire any appointed official without Senate approval, and this was what Johnson was impeached for. During his term, this law was repealed or taken away, and many years later it would be declared unconstitutional. Two major laws that were passed during his presidency were the McKinley Tariff of 1890 and the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. The McKinley Tariff of 1890 was named after future President William McKinley. A tariff is a tax on imported goods. Goods produced in another country and sold in the United States in direct competition with American-made goods. The Republican Party had supported a high tariff. If you remember, electoral college results showed northern states had gone to Harrison, the Republican nominee, and Midwestern farmers and Southerners were not as supportive of tariffs. This law raised the tariff rate from 38% to 49.5%. The tariff decreased competition of foreign-made products and allowed American businesses the opportunity to raise their prices and still be more affordable than foreign-made goods. Good for business owners, bad for the average consumer. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 was the first law of its kind and wouldn't be the last needed to regulate businesses. It banned business practices that allowed for the creation of monopolies and limited competition. The law also allowed the federal government to go after businesses or individuals that violated the act. Do understand that more laws were needed because businesses and individuals found loopholes. He also set aside 13 million acres of government land to protect the country's natural resources, one most famously being Yellowstone Reserve. Now, foreign policy-wise, no major issues, but his Secretary of State, former Senator James Blaine, and President Harrison were very skilled negotiators, and they were able to prevent the flare-up of conflicts over control of the Samoan Islands and the limitation of European influence in Latin American countries, and he supported the annexation of Hawaii, but that would not happen until after his presidency. So... Now we're up to the election of 1892, and this was a rematch between Harrison and Cleveland and the emergence of a new political party, the Populist Party. This party was known as the People's Party. Harrison's wife died just before the election, and this time Cleveland won, bringing the hopeful words of his wife when they left the White House the first time that they would be back to a reality. Shortly after they returned, the Clevelands welcomed their second child, a little girl named Esther. Esther was the first child of a sitting president to be born in the White House. Harrison left the White House a widower, and he moved back to his home in Indiana and returned to his law practice. 
He was a well-respected lawyer, and before he became president, he argued five cases before the Supreme Court. He remarried a much younger woman who was actually Caroline Harrison's niece who had worked at the White House as her assistant. He died in 1901, and his former home is now a museum and a wonderful resource of information if you are interested in learning more about the man who is considered one of our forgotten presidents, yet is the only one to be preceded and succeeded by the same man, Grover Cleveland. So Grover Cleveland returns to the White House for an unprecedented non-consecutive second term as president. Some of the foreign issues that Cleveland was concerned with during his second term was the growing calls for Hawaii to become a state. At this point, we see the Republic of Hawaii established. Cleveland tried to stop this. He greatly disagreed with the way in which the Queen of Hawaii was deposed. It was out of his hands, though. In Latin America, Spain begins to see calls for independence throughout its empire, especially in Cuba. Even though President Cleveland pushed for a policy of neutrality, we begin to see the seeds being planted for what will become known as the Spanish-American War. Domestically, his second term was dominated by the Panic of 1893. The Panic of 1893 was an economic depression in the United States caused by a number of different factors. Overexpansion of the railroad industry, high unemployment, too much silver in circulation due to overmining, and the Sherman Silver Purchasing Act. Remember when we talked about bimetallism, right? Midwestern farmers lost their farms due to unpaid debts. Stock prices fell. It was a mess. By 1895, the U.S. dollar is on the brink of collapse. The U.S. gold reserve fell sharply. Foreign governments started pulling out their investments. And when they do that, they don't want dollars. They want gold, the international currency, right? J.P. Morgan reached out to President Grover Cleveland with an idea to solve the issue. Grover Cleveland ignored him. When it came to investments and business opportunities, J.P. Morgan was a man after your own heart, Jimmy. He liked to look out for carnage, as you say. He saw the dangers of this opportunity, but he also saw the potential for great reward. J.P. Morgan went to Washington, D.C. to meet the president. He was told that the president would not see him. J.P. Morgan did not take no for an answer. He stayed in Washington, D.C., and sure enough, the next morning, President Grover Cleveland agreed to meet with him, and J.P. Morgan suggested a plan that allowed the United States president to buy gold from a Civil War-era law. J.P. Morgan and a group of investors bought the gold bonds and in return gave the U.S. Treasury $60 million worth of gold. Now you're either thinking, what a patriot or what an opportunist. J.P. Morgan wasn't just rich. He was smart and he was strategic. When, we, when he bought a company, he demanded a seat on the board of directors. He had inside intel into the largest and most successful firms. He knew he was giving the United States government an offer they could not refuse. The plan worked. The U.S. dollar was saved, the U.S. economy avoided collapse, and J.P. Morgan became even richer off of the deal. Grover Cleveland politically was hurt by the deal. Many couldn't see beyond who had helped the country. 
His political opponents painted him as a man who had been bought by Wall Street. In the midst of dealing with a severe economic crisis, President Grover Cleveland had to have a cancerous tumor removed from the roof of his mouth. Instead of going to a hospital, it was done in total secrecy aboard a yacht cruising along the waters off of Manhattan, New York. Imagine that happening today. And this was done to avoid causing further panic. Not only was the tumor removed, but a portion of his jaw and an artificial jaw made out of rubber was put in its place. Grover Cleveland survived. No further stress was placed on the American economy, and no one knew of this for years after his death. Also, way to go to American ingenuity. It was a serious medical feat. It was a 90-minute surgery on a moving boat for a surgery that today would probably take multiple hours, all done under the guise of a fishing trip. The president walked onto the boat, and he walked off of the boat, and no one was the wiser of a cancer diagnosis for the president of the United States. Another event we have to talk about is the Pullman Railway Strike, and it's connected to the Panic of 1893. As a result of the economic depression, the Pullman Company cut wages and jobs. It's important to note that the majority of the employees whose wages were cut or who saw their jobs lost completely lived in the town owned by the company. So while their earnings saw a significant decrease, their bills remained the same. The workers unionized and joined the ARU led by its founder, Eugene V. Debs. The Pullman Company refused to negotiate with the union and the members called for a strike of any railway line which used Pullman cars. The hope was that the pressure would force the Pullman Company to the bargaining table. The union was successful in that the strike they called for happened and spread throughout the United States. The strikers prevented lines from running, which not only disrupted local businesses and economies, but it also prevented mail from being delivered. President Cleveland ordered the military to go and break up the strike and ensure that mail be delivered. The overwhelming presence of both local and federal troops led to violence and the eventual end of the strike but not before a significant loss of property to railway companies, a significant loss of wages for workers throughout the country, deaths, and the end of the ARU. When the strike was over, many railway companies made employees sign a contract that they would not unionize, and strike leaders such as Eugene V. Debs were jailed. This won't be the last you hear of Debs. We will talk about him again when we get to World War I. While the railway workers didn't get their demands met, it did lead to a deepening concern for the problems facing the working class. Pullman strike and the Haymarket riot led to the creation of what became known as a working man's holiday. Unions such as the American Federation of Labor and the Knights of Labor had worked for years to bring about change and shed light on the difficulties of the working class brought on by the advances of the Industrial Revolution. The creation of Labor Day in 1894 began the celebration of contributions and achievements of the American worker on the first Monday of September. 
By the time his presidency ended for the second time, he was not considered a great president. He had been abandoned by his political party. He was defeated by William Jennings Bryan for the Democratic nomination for president in the election of 1896, who would lose, spoiler alert, but we will get into that in the next podcast. He left Washington, D.C. feeling feeling pretty alienated. He retired to Princeton, New Jersey. He may have retired from politics, but he invested a lot of time in Princeton University. He was welcomed with open arms by both the town and the school. A man who wasn't able to get a college education due to the death of his father in his younger years was eventually given an honorary degree from Princeton University. He turned down an honorary degree from Harvard while he was still president. He gave a number of guest lectures at, at Princeton. Those lectures were published in a book called Presidential Problems in 1904. In the book, he discussed the various difficulties he faced as president and why he made many of the decisions he did. I have only read excerpts of that. My favorite book on Grover Cleveland, and one that I highly recommend, is Grover Cleveland, A Study in Character. He was eventually asked to be on the board of trustees of Princeton, where he served until his death. And here is an interesting fact. He worked with Woodrow Wilson, who was a professor and president of the university and would, of course, go on to become president of the United States himself. Stephen Grover Cleveland died in June of 1908 of a heart attack. President Theodore Roosevelt ordered that the flags be flown at half-staff for 30 days on the White House and several federal department buildings, and that on the day of the funeral, he be given military and naval honors. He is buried in his beloved town of Princeton, and it is believed that his last words were, I tried so hard to do right. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.